This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Garance Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the East TraumaCast series. I'm your moderator, Faraz Madbeck. I'm an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, alongside Dr. Dave Morris, who is co-moderator today. Dr. Morris, whom you all know, is an acute care surgeon at the uh, Intermountain Health Center outside of Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thanks for having me. It should be great. So we're going to discuss uh, acute mesenteric ischemia, uh, a relatively uncommon condition that we encounter as acute care surgeons, yet it's considered a surgical emergency that's associated with uh, very high mortality, and that really hasn't changed in the last three decades despite advances in critical care and technology and various diagnostic modalities. In fact, the 30-day mortality ranges from 32 to 80%, depending on which series you look at. And the wide variation can be attributed to the diversity in presentation, uh, delayed diagnosis, and associated comorbidities of the patients that present with that condition. Uh, arguably, the key prognostic factor for acute intestinal scheme is early diagnosis and prompt treatment. Um, making early recognition of mesenteric schema crucial. Uh, really excited today to have Dr. Mike Seiss as a guest. Uh, Dr. Seiss is a true household name, as they say. He's the past trauma medical director at Stroops Mercy Hospital in San Diego, and he's the current chief of the medical staff there. He uh, earned his medical degree at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and completed his residency and fellowship training at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. He's board certified by the American Board of Surgery and Surgery, Vascular Surgery, and Critical Care. So he's a true uh, triple threat. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us, sir, and thanks for your service. Well, thanks for inviting me to join you. I look forward to the discussion. So we haven't really made any major strides in improving uh, outcomes when it comes to mesenteric ischemia. Most papers quote the mortality rate as high as 50%. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, unfortunately, mesenteric ischemia is a downstream result from significant comorbidities. Um, you know, if you look at the, <clears throat> the traditional breakdown, uh, if you look at everybody who gets mesenteric ischemia, there's still about 40 to 50% of them who are atrial fibrillation with a cardiac source embolism, which lands in the superior mesenteric artery. Um, you know, it's interesting the flow characteristics come out of the heart are fairly stable. So if you have a chunk of clot at 8 o'clock on the – look at the uh, atrium where the clot forms, if it's set in one part of the atrium, it will always go to the same place. A third go to the upper extremity and brain, a third go to the lower extremity, and a third go to the gut. And it turns out that the angle of the superior mesenteric artery is just right for that embolism to just slide right down and lodge just distal to the takeoff of the proximal jejunal branches and distal to the takeoff of the middle colic. And so the typical distribution of ischemia from proximal jejunum to paddock flexure um, is still probably across the board the most common cause. Well, as trauma critical care surgeons, we see a different perspective. We frequently are taking care of folks we're called to see in the medical ICU who have all sorts of cardiac mortality, uh, I mean, cardiac morbidity, all sorts of problems. Often they're on pressors because of their sepsis or whatever. So we see more small vessel occlusive disease. And then there's another group who are walking around with pre-existing mesenteric artery atherosclerosis who, for one reason or another, finally get to a critical point where they thrombose whatever vessel is remaining open, and despite the presence of pre-existing collaterals, they get into trouble. So, so there's a whole spectrum. The problem is there's almost always delay in diagnosis, no matter how they present. Unless one of our emergency medicine colleagues has a patient atrial fibrillation who comes in with the classical pain out of proportion to findings, um, and they do an early CT scan with contrast, and they see it on CT scan, there's almost always a delay. And as trauma critical care surgeons, we don't often get called to see those folks. Our vascular colleagues get called. So from the perspective of our 
practice and our colleagues, it's usually somebody who's already sick, who's already in the hospital, or has a bunch of other problems that we get called to see. So it's a tough group of patients to care for. Say we're seeing a patient in the emergency center, uh, if we happen to get called, or one of our emergency medicine colleagues, what sort of clinical factors should arise suspicion if somebody comes in with abdominal pain? Well, you know, that's a great question. And, and effectively, uh, in fact, I went to the literature to look at um, the perspective from the emergency department, and every study um, of review studies in particular meta-analyses suggest that the, the presentation is so variable that early contrast CT scan is really the gold standard um, to successfully make this diagnosis. You know, we all learned as medical students the classical pain out of proportion to findings, mm -hmm. and that's because that mesenteric embolism or thrombosis causes gut ischemia with ischemic pain early without peritonitis. Now, later, if there's bowel necrosis, you'll get peritonitis. So that classical pain out of proportion to findings Another thing that's, that's pretty clear in the literature, uh, profound leukocytosis is very common. In fact, I teach my surgery residents on the trauma critical care service. Whenever you see a white count in, in the 20s, you know, over 20,000, always make sure the mesenteric ischemia is on your differential. Um, obviously, somebody with preexisting atrial fibrillation, somebody with diffuse peripheral arterial disease, heavy smoker, et cetera, et cetera, you have to kind of bump it up your your differential list and keep it as uh, a suspicion. So, uh, Dr. Sice, you mentioned the concept of delay, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about, um, do you think, where does the delay really come? Is it making the diagnosis? Is it in transferring these patients? Is it in uh, sort of acting to do the right thing or dilly-dallying around with maybe different studies and things like that? Because I, I feel like I've seen all types of delay in these cases. And also what I'm interested in is kind of what is the effect of um, transfer and regionalization? There's some some systems that like to sort of, you know, transfer their more complex cases. So all of this kind of plays together but may not be the best thing for, for these patients, obviously. What are your thoughts Well, you on know, that? I think you've really answered your own question. It's all of the above. And I, I think that we need to, um, you know, we kid in vascular surgery that we want to be called four to five times with a suspicion of aneurysm or mesenteric ischemia or whatever for everyone that's actually happened so that we want to be called early um, if it's even a possibility. I think that the, you know, working with our emergency medicine colleagues, our hospitalists, and making sure they understand the different indicators that should make them think of mesenteric ischemia early and get a, a contrast CT. You know, I want to point out one thing. We don't want a CT angio because, unfortunately, although CT angio will show us the mesenteric vessels, it won't show us perfusion of the gut. And a standard contrast, IV contrast CT of the abdomen and pelvis will show us the vessels and will show us if there's changes in the intestinal wall that make us suspect maybe small vessel occlusive disease or mesenteric infarction. So I think getting out there with our colleagues who who see these patients first, um, I work at a center that's a tertiary referral center and cover a variety of different hospitals uh, through transfer agreements for vascular emergencies. And the last four or five that I've seen, at least half of them have been transferred in but fortunately, the other centers are very quick to do CT scans and very quick to make the diagnosis. And the delays have been in my own center where somebody got admitted to the hospitalist service with vague abdominal pain. They didn't do a CT scan of the abdomen or they're sick on the medical ICU with bad pneumonia, sepsis on uh, pressors and start to develop a distended abdomen, um, acid-base imbalance. And, you know, by then it's often infarcted bile we're talking about. So I, I think we need to be out there discussing with our colleagues, call us early um, whenever you're even beginning to worry about could this be mesenteric ischemia. Yeah, that's a great point. I think with the imaging, uh, just to expand on that, is that, you know, it's, it's almost protocolized now that oral contrast isn't necessary, which, uh, you know, a lot of our emergency medicine colleagues uh, skip because of throughput and, you know, expediting workup. 
but you know, oftentimes it's a waste of time because it won't get there, and it's not really feasible in a patient like the acute mesenteric ischemia patient. So CT with IV contrast only, not a CT angio. Yeah, that's a good in, point. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is in your practice, but you know, unless you're doing um, a small bowel follow-through in a patient with a post-op ileus versus early bowel obstruction or somebody with recurrent symptoms suggestive of bowel obstruction, unless you're trying to see whether the contrast gets into the cecum, oral contrast with CT imaging for, you know, acute care surgery problems is just kind of leaves me cold, and I just don't recommend it. Mm-hmm. Hasn't hasn't really provided the kind of discretionary information that we can act on. You mentioned the leukocytosis. We put a lot of stock in uh, lactatemia as well. What are your thoughts about, you know, lactate as a, as well, a diagnostic indicator? Well, the problem is that's a very late indicator. And remember, the liver is very effective in clearing lactate, and this is lactate coming from the portal circulation. So by the time you get a lactate that's significantly elevated, you've got dead bowel or bowel that's saying, I'm about to die. And uh, so I think we need to work upstream to look for this diagnosis earlier. The problem is, if the lactate's normal, awful lot of our internal medicine colleagues think, well, it's not mesenteric ischemia, when in fact it could be absolutely wrong. And again, that leukocytosis, you know, whenever I give a talk, I, I kid the, the residents, and, you know, I've given a talk at the AAST on mesenteric ischemia, and, you know, I remind folks that you probably only remember 10% of what you hear in a lecture, so I tell them 10 times, if you see a white count, 20,000 or above, put mesenteric ischemia at the top of your list. And the reason is it'll set up a um, a early recognition pathway that will help you actually save lives. Remember, that terrible mortality rate, which you're right when you introduce this, hadn't changed in 30 years, even 40 years. It's still as high as 80% once there's dead bowel. Now, it can be as low as 20% if you make the diagnosis early and get that embolism out or get that uh, acute uh, ischemia from a a tight mesenteric artery in which you can put a stent or a celiac in which you can put a stent. It can be as low as 20%, but that's still a pretty high mortality. So the game is won by early recognition and then obviously appropriate backup by uh, vascular specialists who, who know how to get the job done. So same patient, you know, in a small rural <coughs> hospital community emergency medicine department uh, with a white count of 24, you get the CTU with IV contrast. What are the, the, the findings that you're looking for that would clue you in to make the diagnosis? Well, I think we've all uh, been familiar with that, you know, cut off of the superior mesenteric artery basically just below the pancreas mm-hmm. uh, from, a, you know, a lozenge-shaped embolism out of the heart. The other indications can be a dense uh, calcific atherosclerosis in in the aorta, which is taken out two of the three um, mesenteric vessels. It's interesting. I've seen patients in my vascular practice who literally are perfusing their entire gut via their um, either their inferior mesenteric with completely occluded uh, celiac and SMA, but a good meandering artery of, you know, Arc of Relin or Ar- mm-hmm. Drummond uh, collateral from inferior mesenteric up. And I've even seen patients who literally are perfusing their entire gut through their hemorrhoidals, through the hypogastrics, if it's happened slowly and it developed collaterals. The problem comes when they have acute on chronic occlusive disease where they've actually thrombosed a uh, tight uh, supermesenteric or celiac artery. It's usually the supermesenteric um, that goes. The other problem is somebody who has cardiac disease has low output because of acute myocardial infarction or congestive failure, and now they're in trouble because the collateral flow suffers from the decreased in overall cardiac output, and now they've got ischemia without having fresh clots. So it's complicated, but again, getting that diagnosis up on everyone's differential list, when there's pain out of proportion with, with the findings, when there's a profound leukocytosis, probably the best thing we can pass on to our colleagues in the emergency department and the hospitalists and our pulmonary critical care colleagues taking care of these folks. Now, in terms of the transfer, I think as as a vascular specialist, I try to reach out to everybody 
with the idea that call me early. I'm happy to look at your images. I'm happy to talk to you about what's going on. So, for instance, just yesterday, I had a fellow I'd done a stent graft on, stent graft repair, 14 years ago for abdominal aortic aneurysm, who showed up with abdominal pain, congestive heart failure, and they were worried about his aneurysm. Well, I'd been following him with serial CAT scans. I knew his aneurysm was fine. But I, but it was reassuring that I, my emergency medicine colleagues were calling with that concern early. And sure enough, it was congestive heart failure. We got him tuned up, and he did better. On the other hand, about two months ago, a woman shows up with vague abdominal pain, weight loss, and they're treating her for either biliary tract disease or gastritis. She gets admitted to the internal medicine service hospitalist. On day four, they get a CAT scan, which shows complete occlusion of the superior mesenteric and inferior mesenteric, um, I'm sorry, celiac artery with inferior mesenteric artery um, collaterals. And she was suffering from classic mesenteric angina, fear of food, weight loss uh, that had been going on and had been seen as an outpatient and then as an inpatient for quite a long time. She ended up having a very complex uh, reconstruction uh, and ultimately succumbed to her overwhelming comorbidities a good two and a half months out from, from reconstruction. But the reconstruction was successful. So, again, it's, it's such a complicated group of patients that part of our successful management is making sure our colleagues know to call us early and call us often. Definitely. That's a long answer. And that's a relationship. Well, that's a relationship you have to work on every day, right? Because if you if you bark at somebody for calling about an appy or something like that, they're not going to call for the for the vascular thing. So that speaks to just improving the culture and the relationship overall. Well, I think so. I, I you know I think that no matter whether you're at a private hospital, public hospital, an academic center, I think we owe it to our colleagues to be um, we kid about. <laughs> We actually call ourselves the Ghostbusters. You know, who are you going to call? And uh, and we're ready to believe you. No matter what you did, you can call us. I think, <laughs> I really believe that we are uh, a unique group of colleagues um, that anybody should be able to call for anything in the hospital. I think, I really feel after, you know, working on this a long time um, and you know, running a, a level one trauma center or acute care surgery practice that we want everybody in the hospital to feel like they can call us for anything, for our advice, whether difficult airway, an MICU, somebody who just isn't doing well, or abdominal pain, not sure what's going on. And I really believe that for us to be successful and own the franchise of taking care of the sickest patients, we already own the franchise for trauma. We need to own the franchise for acutely ill patients who may have surgical disease. And that's by showing up. Um, and, you know, being there, helping things get expedited. The guy in congestive failure with abdominal pain from, you know, that and not anything else. Well, you know, we help call the cardiologist and the pulmonologist and make sure everything's okay. I really believe strongly in that, uh, and I think that we end up being the heart and soul of the hospital for sick patients, whether they need us to operate or not. And I think that that's the best way to get the best outcome for our patients. And, you know, it, it kind of it, it really improves our brand, if you will. It's well said, very well said. Absolutely. So you, you touched on another point, Dr. Seiss, uh, about you know, sort of subcategorizing the two major types, occlusive, non-occlusive, and it's further classically described as, as four separate types. Can you um, kind of tell us, you know, which, which one's more common, which one's more lethal, and can we actually distinguish the etiology based on the presentation? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, the, there are the four. There's arterial embolism, usually cardiac source. There's the um, atherosclerotic occlusive disease. Um, there's the small vessel occlusive disease. But there's an emerging group that's very important, uh, and often we're involved in the sequelae, and that's uh, venous thrombosis, mesenteric venous thrombosis, DVT of the portal system. Um, and every one of our acute care surgery services, sooner or later, sees someone who, usually because of a delay of diagnosis, ends up with extensive intestinal infarction from the intestinal equivalent of uh, phlegmasia cerulea dolens, and that is venous congestion, which results in um, tremendous tissue loss, vasoconstriction, and bowel necrosis. And often, we're stuck with somebody with short gut syndrome because 
by the time we see them, it's been so delayed that there basically is mesenteric venous infarction. And, and I, I don't know if you guys have managed those patients, but they are sick, and they are tough to deal with. Um, and, again, it, it's a growing number of patients. Because of the fact that we're successfully treating cancer, because of the fact that there are a whole bunch of inflammatory diseases, we're now recognizing more and more folks with uh, hereditary thrombophilia, hypercoagulable state. We're seeing, I think, more and more folks. It used to be traditional. There's only 10% of mesenteric ischemia. I think it's actually climbing closer to 15 to 20%. So, you know, one in seven of, of up to one in seven of folks with mesenteric ischemia actually have a, um, a venous thrombosis problem. Turns out that CAT scan is the way to make that diagnosis again, a halo sign in the superior mesenteric vein or in the portal vein. You know, we're, we're kind of amateur radiologists in trauma and acute care surgery. We look at a lot of scans, and I think that we need to learn to have the ability to make sure we're looking at not only those mesenteric arteries, but that we can actually see the veins and things like portal hypertension with hypersplenism, are one of the more common causes of mesenteric venous thrombosis, the perineoplastic syndrome with, with um, any kind of successfully treated cancer. I'm seeing it more often with folks, um, young women on birth control pills, uh, and then obviously folks with factor V Leiden and the others. So I think we have, kind of have to have an awareness when we're looking at these patients, because often we're the ones who are actually looking at the CAT scans. Uh, with or without, you know, the Nighthawk radiologist, or we need to really focus on not just the usual targets we look at, but look at both the arteries and the vein and make sure there's not a you know, mesenteric venous thrombosis. Now, just like the guy who shows up with a DDT in his leg, who's got a big blow, uh, blue swollen leg, you give him a high dose of heparin, not Lovenox, because Lovenox doesn't do the same thing. It doesn't coat the clot and turn down the vasoreactivity. Big dose, 10,000 or more of heparin, good hydration, NPO, and just like with lower extremity DVT, you put them on bowel rest, hydrate them, keep them anticoagulated. And the vast majority of mesenteric venous thromboses that we get early don't need surgery. And they recover with, just like somebody with a DVT, they recanalize and, um, and get better. Mm -hmm. Now, just like any etiology, we have to have a high index of suspicion for bowel necrosis. And operate early and operate often if we're worried about actual bowel ischemia necrosis. Let's talk about management of, of the embolic and thrombotic uh, etiology. So the mainstay clearly has been you know, surgical therapy. What other adjunctive um, modalities would you utilize? So you said you mentioned anticoagulation and then bowel prospective antibiotics. Is there anything else we should think about um, before we get these patients set up to go to the operating room? Well, you know, I think we get we get them to the operating room with the same rapidity that we take, um, you know, any trauma emergency. We hydrate them, wind them, uh, give a big dose of heparin the minute you've made the diagnosis uh, to help prevent further propagation. Um, and again, it you know, one of the things that gets us in trouble with any kind of embolism is that venous thrombus mass has incredible vasoreactivity, and heparin immediately coats all circulating elements and the thrombus uh, with, uh, you know, the negatively charged ion of heparin and cuts down the vasoreactivity. That's why, for instance, you can save somebody with a pulmonary embolism with a big dose of heparin and relieve their, their right heart failure by turning down the vasoreactivity. Again, not Lovenox, but heparin. Um, get them to the operating room unless... They don't have clear signs of ischemia, and you have a vascular colleague or interventional radiology colleague who knows how to do not only good diagnostic angiography, but can actually extract clot. There, there's a growing uh, body of information. There's only a few case reports. Uh, there's one recently from China where they've used some of these extraction thrombectomy catheters and have successfully cleared the superior mesenteric artery. That's not something that somebody ought to do for the first time on somebody with an embolism in their superior mesenteric artery. That ought to be somebody who can get it out within the first hour or simply go to the operating room and do the classical exploration, um, you know, you, the classical approach where you go just below the pancreas and the, the small bowel mesentery, find the superior mesenteric artery for, for an embolic clot, 
carefully make a transverse incision and use a Fogarty catheter to get the clot out. And then, you know, close it up and wait. Wait at least 15 or 20 minutes with warm packs on the bowel. And if there's any question, do a second look. That's one of the first uh, groups of patients in which we did, for all intents and purposes, a damage control laparotomy with a second look. So your operative approach, um, just to kind of expand on that a little bit, like your tips and tricks, you would make a transverse uh, arteriotomy on that. Right. A, a, a couple, couple, of, couple of caveats. The first thing yeah. is, you know, you do a, you, you make a big incision. And now, remember, you may well be called into the operating room by a general surgery colleague if you're, you know, vascular capable or, you know, the guy who also has vascular skills, man or woman who has vascular skills, and and they've operated on a patient who's got a, some dead bowel, and they're worried that there's mesenteric embolism or proximal mesenteric artery occlusive disease. Um, the very pattern of the ischemia or the necrosis will point to its origin. So, again, if if it starts in the jejunum with some proximal sparing and goes all the way up to hepatic flexure, that's probably an embolism in the supermesenteric artery. If it's all the way from the ampulla, from the, the mid-duodenum to the splenic flexure, then that's probably a complete occlusion of the supermesenteric artery. It can be patchy, it can be segmental, it can be ileocolic, sort of down, downstream if it's a small embolism. Um, the best way to interrogate the arteries is either with a, by palpating pulses or listening with a Doppler to make sure that there's good arterial tones. But, you know, this is one where you gotta call a friend. Call one of your vascular colleagues who's experienced with this. And, you know, most of our general surgery colleagues will do that. The other thing is make sure you have a sense of who your vascular colleagues are. Unfortunately, with the modern realities of vascular training, an awful lot of our graduating vascular surgeons, if you're a surgeon in your 50s, there's a high likelihood that you did more open vascular than your graduating board-certified vascular surgery colleagues from their fellowships. So make sure you have someone on your team who knows how to do open surgery. The, the two approaches um, depend on the origin. If of the of the occlusion, if it's the classical cardiac source embolism, you um, you go to you pull up on the the transverse colon mesentery, uh, move your ball over to the right, uh, go to the root of the mesentery. You can usually feel a pulse right along the pancreas. Uh, you dissect down to the pulse if there's one present, or dissect down into the root of the mesentery, usually you'll see the supermesenteric vein first, the arteries right next to it. Um, get uh, gentle, uh, we gently placed uh, silastic vessel loops, uh, make a transverse arterotomy, and be incredibly careful. This is not the femoral artery with a good muscular and elastic layer. This is a very fragile artery. And despite a lot of experience with this, I've had to completely bypass that artery because it fell apart trying to fix that transverse arteriotomy that, you know, even in pulling on the Fogarty catheter, make sure when you pull the Fogarty catheter out, you don't pull it against the artery because you'll tear the artery. Gently pass the Fogarty up and down, get good flow from above, get out all the clot you can get out, put in a little heparinized saline, run a closure transversely very gently. What I usually do is, I move to clamps on the artery, gentle clamps on the artery, so I can kind of push the artery, you know, the cut areas of the artery together so I'm not pulling them apart with a silastic vessel loops. Close it up and then watch and see what happens with the bowel. Um, what, what we usually do, the old days we'd, taste, we'd say take a smoke break, but that's not kosher anymore. <laughs> pack some warm uh, laparotomy packs on the bowel. Take the um, Buckwalter or the... Omni retractor blades out and walk out and have a cup of coffee for 15 minutes and then come back and take a look. If not, you're looking at is it better, is it better, is it better. You need to walk out and walk back in. Let the anesthesia catch up if they need to and make sure. Now, the other situation where you think you have a proximal occlusion, um, you can still try the Fogarty catheter gently, but generally it will not go proximally. You will not get flow. That's a tough group of patients. Um, if you're experienced with it, the best operation is an anti-grade bypass 
from the aorta behind the core of the diaphragm with a, uh, a graft sewn end to side to the aorta and then end to side to the superior mesenteric artery. Once you've done it, you realize it's not as intimidating as it sounds, but if you haven't done it, it's not one where you can just decide to do it if you've never even seen it. And that's one where you really want to have an experienced vascular surgeon to do it. Some folks jump back from the <clears throat> iliac artery back up to the superior mesenteric artery. That's a tough bypass to do without kinking. Um, sometimes that's all you can do. And that's the other option. It's a great summary. Yeah, that's an important take-home point is, you know, revascularize before any bowel work, any resection. In terms of the second look or at the index operation, what do you think about intraoperative evaluation of intestinal perfusion? Uh, would you use things like just, you know, macroscopic assessment or fluorescein or uh, endocinin green, any other? Yeah, no, I think, I think as we became more experienced with damage control laparotomy for trauma, I think we're less worried about getting it all, if you will. So you can do all those things. You can listen with a Doppler. You can use <clears throat> fluorescein. But I think just good judgment, cut out what's obviously dead. The other thing we've learned from trauma, you know, you get a poly gunshot wound or stab wound who's desperately ill. You get them in the operating room, you staple bowel and you know, resect what has to go. We're all comfortable now with coming back at 24, maybe even 36 hours with bollets in discontinuity and then hooking them up. So I think some of the things that drove us to feel like we had to do it all at the first operation, we've learned you don't. So after that 15 to 20 minutes of warming up the bowel, seeing what happens, obviously cut out what's obviously dead. And, in fact, one of the things that I've taken to doing is, again, having learned from my trauma patients, is I'll staple and cut out the black bowel, like, right away before I revascularize. Because remember, what, I, what we don't want to do is put all those inflammatory toxins that comes from reperfusion of, of bowel that is obviously necrotic, which may gain access to the portal venous system. We don't want to give our anesthesiologist uh, a myocardial infarction with the hypotension we cause when we reperfuse. So I've taken to doing quick damage control resection of obviously dead bowel, then doing the resection, and again, being careful to, you know, towel things off so I don't contaminate if I'm using synthetic, um, and then take a look. Um, and then I think we've all learned that, you know, if, it, if you're not sure, there's no reason why you can't leave it in discontinuity, um, do a damage control closure, whatever way you've chosen to do, it's just like your trauma patients, and then come back at 24 hours. So I think a lot of those adjuncts that we used before were in the setting of feeling like we had to get it all done and we were uncomfortable doing second look. I think if you're operating for mesenteric ischemia, with laparotomy, you have to do a second look. And again, we've learned in trauma that it's not a sign of weakness to do a second look. That's one thing that I've seen over and over again working in referral centers is that uh, I'll get the patients five days after their initial operation where an anastomosis was performed on the first operation, and it just seems like that just seems like a really risky approach. Are there any indications or any instances where you would go ahead and do an anastomosis during that first operation? You know, I don't think so. And again, if you talk to me, you know, two decades ago, before the extensive experience, I think all of us who are trauma and acute care surgeons have gained in doing good damage control for traumatic injury to the bowel, I would have said, yeah, absolutely, anastomosis. But I think it's, I think it's fine to leave them in discontinuity for a day or so. I think we've all had that experience. Um, and you know, let's, let's face it, uh, if you play the, like, what I like to call a calculus of harm, if you're wrong and leave them in discontinuity, you're not going to hurt them. If you're wrong and you anastomose them, and especially if you do a closure on your first operation, you've set them up for potential death. So I think the calculus of harm is against doing primary anastomosis in the setting of testicular ischemia and resection, and I would not do it. I would, I would wait and come back. And that's what we did in my patient with the, you know, the mesenteric angina who's been sick for so long. She had an infarction more or less in the watershed, which is down in the ileocecal area. That's kind of at the, the end of the sprinkler line, if you will. Um, you know, think of your garden. If you turn down the power on your sprinkler, one, one corner, especially in California, one corner of that garden at the end of the sprinkler line is going to die. Well, turns out the ileocecal area is at the end of the distribution of the super mesenteric and sure enough she had you know kind of chronic ischemia 
um, with an acute exacerbation in that area. We did an ileocecectomy, left her in discontinuity, and at uh, 24 hours went back, and everything else looked quite good, and then we did our anastomosis. And that ended up doing quite well. She ultimately died from her just severe malnutrition, uh, cardiopulmonary comorbidities without uh, an intestinal problem. I wanted to ask you, are there situations where you can sort of predict that you can prognosticate intraoperatively and determine uh, salvageability, say the patient with the SMA thrombus and their entire small bowel, your entire mid-gut is compromised uh, and, frankly, ischemic. Is that a patient you would consider? You know, how, how do you approach the decision-making process, whether you would proceed with a, with a more aggressive? Well, that's a great model. question, and I think we're all you know, familiar with what we like to call the peak and shriek, mm-hmm. where you, <clears throat> you, know, you open up the abdomen and everything's dead. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've had a number of patients over the years who've had complete infarction of everything from the uh, basically the cardio of the stomach all the way down to the rectosigmoid who actually were hungry, uh, didn't have a whole lot of findings. And what happens is they, you know, their, their liver becomes ischemic in addition and um, you operate on them and they're basically dead. And, and that's time to stop. Um, there's There's no... There's no getting them back. There's no small bowel transplant in a 65-year-old atherosclerotic man or woman. By the way, women in general um, are a little bit more prone to atherosclerosis of um, <clears throat> visceral arteries than are men. However, remember that if you're doing an extensive bowel resection to the point of short gut syndrome, this is a group of patients who are not going to do well no matter what you do. And At some point, there may be a role to stop and change the goals of therapy to comfort. In general, I think if there's any um, possibility of there being enough follow, then I think we do what we just talked about. By the way, there now is a role, and with my interventional cardiology and and catheter-skilled vascular surgery colleagues, you know, there is a role um, if you get a patient who you have to operate on because of signs and symptoms of possible mesenteric infarction, and the lesion can be treated with a stent, you can do a hybrid procedure. And you don't have to have a hybrid OR to do that. Take your patient up to the OR on a uh, fluoro-capable table, and with a digital C-arm and, you know, willing colleagues who are capable and a set of catheters, you can do that um, at the same time, you know, you've got your laparotomy uh, performed, you've seen the bowel, and your original imaging study suggests that maybe we can get a wire across, and even a retrograde wire. I've, I've had colleagues who've passed a wire from inside the supermesenteric and been able to angioplasty open proximally. So I think our, our bag of tricks is increasing. But one thing's for certain, you need to have that abdomen open if there's any chance that there's bowel infarction. There, there's no way that not operating is going to reduce the risk of death, and you're going to take a patient who's got a pretty tough fight to survive and guarantee their death if you're not in there, um, if there's a significant risk of there actually being necrotic bowel. So on that point, since it's 2018, I've got to ask you, is there a role for laparoscopy in these patients, uh, say, say when either diagnosis is in question or for the second look, or you know what you mentioned is that you have to visually inspect the bowel? Well, I maybe in the sense that if if you're worried about um, non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia and you're worried there's small bowel and you don't have to do anything to the arteries and your patient's resuscitated, then I think you may well be able to do laparoscopy to make sure there's not obvious necrosis. Now, I think as we have colleagues and as as many of my general surgery colleagues who have advanced laparoscopic skills, you certainly can run the bowel. Um, Now, if it's all distended bowel, you're not going to be very successful at it. I think that, I think you have to make a commitment to do whatever it takes and bring the whole toolbox so that if you do laparoscopy on a patient who you're worried may have some ischemic bowel and you're able to your satisfaction get a good look at the bowel, and back off and see how they do. And it works great. But if you try that and you don't get a good look, 
then I think you better be quick to open because, again, the calculus of harm is is minimal from the procedures we do. It's maximal from dead bowel. So whatever it takes to find dead bowel if it's present, prevent bowel from dying, do a, a staged approach to make sure that questionable bowel that we leave behind gets looked at again. I think it's a, you know, I, I like to kid that sometimes our job's like a street fight. Um, got a tough trauma patient, got a tough acute care surgery patient. You got to be ready to keep throwing punches surgically and in your management style until you win. And I think so that, sure, go ahead and do laparoscopy if you are certain that you've done it in a way that assures you you don't have bowel at risk. Great. If not, open them up. So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You never let the skin stand between you and the diagnosis. Well, you know, I think one of the things, and I, I, th- I think I think you'll agree that this job's a contact sport. You really need to engage in every single aspect of what's happening to the patient. You don't just do a consult and walk away. You get involved. You figure it out. You find out whether or not their cardiac status is being adequately addressed. You find out whether or not they're getting adequate hydrated. If they're on pressors and they find, need volume, you make sure that your colleagues in pulmonary medicine do that. And you're on that abdomen like white on rice. Um, and I think that approach allows you to choose the different modalities, bring in the colleagues who have the expertise you need until you actually make that patient better. And, I, you know, that, that may sound kind of trite, but, but I really think if you take that approach, I've found that when I haven't done that, when I thought, well, there's no moral for me here, I've regretted it. I've absolutely regretted it. And I've realized that even though I wasn't going to operate on that patient, that patient would have done better if I brought the full set of skills that we have as trauma and acute care and critical care surgeons. So if they consult us, we're on it. We don't just walk away. And I think if you take that approach, it's it's better for the patient, obviously. It's better for our brand, and it's a hell of a lot more professionally satisfying. Totally agree. Uh, it comes back to your, your point earlier about being the heart and soul, just the safeguard for the hospital. Every Every hospital in America, I think, needs somebody like that. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, I think there's another thing that, that I've, I've urged my colleagues to think about. So, so somebody calls you, whether it's for this problem or another one, and life or limb is at stake, and they're not sure what's going on. And somebody calls you from the ED or a colleague in the OR or one of the floors or one of the hospitalists or the MICU. When you show up, is it going to be, ah, he or she's here, it's going to be better, or uh-oh, here, here, here they come. What are they going to yell about me? Yell at me about now? Honestly, guys, I think that our brand is call us. No matter what's happened, Ghostbusters, we're ready to believe you. <laughs> we actually, we actually designed some jerseys for actually their 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 polar tees for for our team. And in Latin, it says, uh, "Who are you going to call?" Oh, nice. So can I ask you again, going back to the transfer, uh, the transfer issue, um, do you have any protocols or anything that sort of expedites, I mean, you know, like with a trauma, it's pretty easy. We have those things set up where an outlying hospital maybe doesn't do trauma and just says, oh, this is trauma, and boom, they transfer, they don't image, they don't waste any of that time that is so precious in trauma. Can you, do you have or would it make sense to try to set up a similar thing for no, I, well, well, that's a great question. I think yes. I think that depending on, um, you know, what your referral hospitals are like, um, you know, they may not have complete general surgery coverage or vascular surgery coverage. So I think developing a relationship with their emergency medicine physicians, because those are the folks who are going to make the diagnosis most likely. Um, if they're already on the pulmonary uh, critical care service on the MICU, generally they have general surgery assets that can deal with that. But I think having a relationship, making sure that, so, for instance, our trauma surgeon has one pager number and our regional hospitals know to page us, and they're starting to page us more now with emergency general surgery where, for one reason or another, they can't get coverage. Um, I think that if you have that, again, that outreach, that sort of marketing to your colleagues, we've done that, my colleagues and I, we have a unique situation until very recently. All of our vascular surgery at our hospital is done by was done by two of us, both of whom are trauma surgeons and vascular surgeons. So we're we're always available, you know, 
it was when Dr. Steve Shackford, who recently retired with us, 15 nights a month, that was a vascular trauma surgeon on call. So they know, they have our numbers, they know to call us. So we developed a relationship with our regional hospitals where if they get a CAT scan with mesenteric occlusive disease, they call our cell or they call our pager number and they get immediately transferred just like a trauma patient. I think developing that ability by whatever relationships you have and usually a personal relationship between um, your group and the group of emergency medicine physicians at the hospitals you get referrals from um, with the idea that don't be afraid to call us is an incredible boon to patient care, to the professional relationship, and in, in reality saves you days of time. Because if they know how to call you early rather than days later, let's face it, that, that's that's just a good investment in time management. to take care of too. Yeah. 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 Time management. Again, I, I think you really have to have a sense as a group that you want your brand of being the people to call out there. And I think that yields a just a better practice, a better practice relationship, and it certainly yields a better outcome for your patients. Agree. Yeah, that, I mean, that's actually a great topic for future trauma because the regionalization of emergency general surgery, where you know, we're, we're trying to develop all these. There's a lot of people doing a lot of work on you know scoring systems and you know early identification and you know the similar outreach we do in trauma is just the, the cornerstone of transfer definitive care, not to waste precious time getting you know imaging and, and lab studies that you're not going to be able to address. Not be afraid to call early. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and and then you actually end up having those those folks become sort of part of your team and uh, doing the initial management. So I think you're absolutely right about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all had the experience where we're called early, the patient gets put on sort of the whatever, each of us has a different equation of how we cover uh, emergency general surgery. We all, We bring all our emergency vascular onto the trauma service. So our trauma service is all the house staff, all the nurse practitioners, the rounding attendings, rounding all the trauma patients, all of our emergency general surgery patients and the emergency vascular patients we bring on the service. Um, those, those patients get so much better care than similar patients not on our service, no matter what kind of hospital we're in. And so I think that getting them into the organizational approach we have to the trauma patient just changed the particulars. You know, it's a perforated colon lesion. It's a rupture of dilatory aneurysm. Whether or not we do a stent graft or open, those patients just thrive on the trauma emergency surgery service um, compared to other services. Just to kind of bring it back with with our patient, the you know, we brought the patient to the ICU, the temporary abdominal closure, bring him back for a second look. There's no further infarcted bowel. The bowel looks uh, viable and healthy. Everything seems static. And the abdomen is closed. In terms of post-op care, can you tell us a little bit about your um, approach to anticoagulation, what agent, and how long? Yeah, yeah well, um, you know, if it's if it's a bypass um, and not an embolectomy, and the patient's not an AFib, that's a that's a different situation. You generally don't need any post-op anticoagulation. But if it is a cardiac source embolism, it's important to remember there's a 30% reembolization rate. So that patient needs to be on full anticoagulation. Generally, we wait 8 to 12 hours, and we have to accept the risk of, you know, a hematoma. Um, generally, there's not major intra-abdominal bleeding, you know, unless we've – if they're going to bleed, they're going to bleed with or without heparin uh, inside the abdomen. By the way, I, I, I'm an old-school surgeon. I do not do primary skin closure on most uh, damage control um, second operations. I, I just – I'm a firm believer that I don't want any pus in that wound, so I, I'll do a wound back on almost all these folks, especially if they've got chronic uh, malnutrition in the chronic case. In the acute case, you may well be able to close them up. Um, I also have adopted a dilute betadine irrigation of all my wounds and have cut down on my surgical site infections. But, again, those are particulars. And then just good cardiopulmonary resuscitation, the, you know, the usual things we do, um, not unlike our uh, tough, Abdominal operations for gunshot wound or blunt abdominal trauma, you know, it's all the priorities. About six, eight hours later, you start heparin without a bolus. Heparin, you know, most of our hospitals have a heparin protocol, just like you would with somebody with uh, a DVT uh, that needs to be fully anticoagulated. 
and then obviously wait until they're totally stable um, to get them back on either Coumadin or a, a Factor 10A inhibitor, Sorelto or Eliquis. The real risk is is upfront. Um, the the real determinant of how they're going to do, and, and again, these folks are not well to start with. So, getting your cardiologist, uh, getting everyone involved um, to make sure if they've got any renal insufficiency, making sure that you deal with all those things. But the real challenge is the appropriate, timely revascularization, resection of dead bowel, staged anastomoses. In some cases, you may have to do a ileostomy or colostomy if it's really complicated. That package of surgical management is the only leverage we have to improve survival. They're not a healthy group of patients. The best we can get it to is to about a 20%. If you have to open and resect bowel, it probably is a 30 to 40% 30-day mortality. However, if you want to get it as low as possible, that sort of Early diagnosis, effective management, getting them to the ICU definitively cared for, good ICU management, but it's that first sort of package of surgical management you do, which is your only leverage to get a good outcome. And you really have to, you know, really be involved with that and totally focused on it. Well, this is great. Uh, it's a great summary of uh, quite a complicated yeah, topic. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Well, you know, we always uh, always said in vascular surgery, sooner or later, the take-home is don't get vascular disease. And the other thing we say in trauma, the take-home is don't get shot, stabbed, or run over. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, well, thank you so much for joining us again. All right, guys. Really thank appreciate you doing this. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks a lot. That wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. Make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.